Well, Ridley Pearson, again, uh, one of my favorite authors. Uh, he, David Baldacci, Stephen White, Peter Leonard. That's nice company. <laughs> hey, you, you know, I got to put you where you belong, man. No, Ridley. Hey, I'll take that. <laughs> I thought you were going to put me with Dr. Seuss or something. I was even ready for that. Hell no. No, I actually enjoy your work, Ridley. <laughs> We're talking with Ridley Pearson today. He's got a new novel out, The Red Room. And when I first saw the cover, I noticed a little uh, little uh, Chinese uh, C with a star on the cover. And a little background of uh, looks like some uh, old architecture coming out of the 6th, 7th century. It must be... Uh, must be somewhere That's in the city. a Turkish city. flag and a mosque. There you go. There you go. We're talking with Ridley Pearson. How are you, man? I'm doing great, thanks. Good. Good to talk to you again. Well, you've Same got here. you've got 48 books under your belt now, and uh, we were just talking off air about us, uh, you and I, uh, uh, hitting uh, hitting an age where we really didn't think we'd uh, feel the way we feel. <laughs> so. So uh, thirty-seven is a lot different than thirty-five. I'll tell you that. <laughs> oh man! So, our my first question is: You've got, like I said, forty-eight books. Uh, you're a uh, uh, prolific writer, I think, and uh, you really know your stuff. Uh, as I've said before, you're one of the you're one of the best writers because your your paragraphs for crying out loud, your chapters uh, um, paint pictures for me. And so I'd like you to paint a picture for the audience and give us a little uh, give us a little thumbnail sketch of the Red Room. Sure, the Red Room is part of the Risk Agent series, and uh, which is an international kind of espionage. If you like the Born Identity movie, Born Supremacy, uh, that's what these books are like. I, I loved the early Ludlum Follett, John Le Carre. Uh, and this is in that vein. It's two private intelligence operatives, not not belonging to a government. And in the Red Room, Grace Chu and John Knox are assigned to pose as brokers of international art, illegal art, and to try to sell it to a buyer who is arriving into Istanbul. And the deeper they get into this sale the more they worry they've been set up and that the buyer is in fact being hunted by spies from all over the world. So that they find themselves right in the middle of something they don't want to be in. Wow. Sounds like, um, sounds like contemporary times where we don't want to be in the middle of what's going on right now. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, that's kind of the analogy. The, there are a couple reasons I picked Istanbul for this book. The first book was Shanghai, China. In the Risk Agent series, the second book, Choke Point, was in Amsterdam, and the new one, Red, Red Room, is in Istanbul. And Istanbul is the only city in the world that sits on two continents. Uh, on one side, it's Asia, and on the other side, it's Europe. Hmm. And uh, as a result, it is the, the meeting point of both all the wonderful cultures of the world and all the problems of the world. Mm -hmm. If you can imagine a country, Turkey... It has as its neighbors Greece, it has uh, Syria, Iran, Iraq, and Georgia, 
um, and one other satellite Russian country that I'm spacing out. But it is in the middle of a place. That's a neighborhood you don't want to build your house. And um, it also turns out that Istanbul is this, the leading city in the world for the conveyance of black market art. Hmm. And what stunned me is that in terms of dollar value, the biggest crime in the world is drugs, and the second biggest set of crimes in the world is stolen art. No. And I just never would have guessed that. Really? I would have put it probably 15 or 20 on my list. But it's about $3 billion a year, and much of it is exchanged and resold in Istanbul. No. So that's, that's why I chose I really believe in making the setting of a story, a character in the story. So it's important to me to determine where a story is going to take place mm. and then what is the story. And uh, Istanbul is a confluence of cultures. It's a confluence of problems. And the, the story is really based around the fact that Israel is determined to uh, bomb to smithereens the Iranian nuclear effort. <laughs> and for the past 24 months, every time an Iranian scientist in the nuclear program there, leaves the country, uh, they're dead within a week. And that's the Israeli Mossad, although that's all alleged. Yeah. It's pretty well accepted that that's the Israeli Mossad going to work. Some of them are, are disappear and never reappear, mm -hmm. and others are killed dead on the spot. And uh, Knox and Grace come to realize that maybe the buyer of this antiquity they're selling illegally uh, is one of those scientists. Well, the Mossad is real, and um, oh yeah, it. it um, God, what was that uh, freaking movie about the? Oh, the Olympic Games. Um, what the hell was it? Oh uh, my God! Yeah, they um, back in the sixties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I, I've uh, read a yeah. couple of books, uh, seen a few movies on that. Uh, one was called Munich. They're it was a, Munich. A yeah, top, Munich. It was Munich. Yeah. Yeah. They're a top-notch intelligence group. Uh, unmatched in the world, unparalleled in the world. Yeah, they can basically pull anything off, and you never know they did it. Yeah. So yeah. W there are a lot of lessons to learn there. Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah, I, I've actually met a couple of Israelis uh, that were still in the military, and uh, these guys, these guys are trained. I mean, these guys are. Boy, are they trained? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they are trained. Amazing, amazing techniques. Um, well. We, uh, you know, let's get back to East Istanbul. Um, I believe the last time we talked, uh, I think it was Choke Point, where uh, you you went to Amsterdam, and, right? And you walked the streets, right. and you walked the canal, right. and you got a sense. Did you go to Istanbul? Which I've basically done for every book I've ever written, and the one exception is the Red Room. Oh, for crying But uh, I'm hoping readers won't sense that. The, the first trip I had planned was canceled because an American was kidnapped over there. Mm. And the second one was canceled because there was a riot on the streets, and now there's a riot like every six weeks. And by the time my third trip was planned, the book was done and going to copy edit. And I went, oh, boy. But it was great for me because... My very first novel, Never Look Back, written 150 years ago, um, required me to take 84 books out of the library over a period of about a year and a half through interlibrary loan. And the great thing about being forced out of Istanbul 
was how do I, I've traveled a great deal, including in the Middle East, but how do I pin down exactly what Istanbul's like? Mm. And uh, when you turn to the library and you turn to the internet and work your tail off, you can put yourself there. So I spent many more hours on the internet than I normally would have for a, for a book I write. And I think it really paid off. I mean, I watched maybe 50 or 75 YouTube videos Mm. shot by tourists walking around Istanbul. Mm. Uh, I studied all sorts of still photos. I read up on all the museums and the tourist sites and the policing of Istanbul and the culture and the history of it. Um, I, uh, you know, just on and on and on. And and it was, I, I read a book, I read a number of novels to get a sense of what novelists there feel the streets are like. And uh, including Orhan Pamuk's Museum of Innocence, he won the, the uh, Nobel Prize for the book he wrote before that. I think it was The Red Door or something. And uh, he's just a phenomenal writer. And, and he has so much texture of what it's like on the streets of Istanbul in that book. Uh, I tried to recreate and capture that kind of sense of, you know, the tobacco smells and the coffee smells and the body odor and the diesel fumes and just, you know, what what it's like to walk down the streets of Istanbul. Yeah, I'm sitting in a cafe right now. Thank you very much. That was actually pretty good. No, I am. I'm in a cafe. I'm uh, in a little table. Uh, the guy's inside making the coffee. There's the hookah area, whatever. A lot, there you of, go. A lot of activity on the streets. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, Yeah, I'm there. That's pretty good yeah we're good but that's what i like about your books man (laughs) you write like i said you write in a way where where we can you know we can build these images and and oh that's great you know you you, your job is to suspend a reader's disbelief yeah so if they're reading it and the place you're writing about is istanbul and it feels like indianapolis you've got problems (laughs) you got big so you know (laughs) <laughs> I spend a lot of time to put fact into the book, right. into the books, right. so that you are going to believe it because, in fact, it's true. And then where I need to bend the facts, I do to write my fiction. But I really spend time on description and character, trying to give you a real feel for people and place and sense and emotion, mm-hmm. and then throw it all into the vortex of high-speed action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think you get it in this book also. Yeah, let's go back to the art. You know, let's go back to the uh, art smuggling and trading. Um, yeah, Istanbul. Uh, okay, I would expect I would expect that um, Interpol and other agencies are on the on the ground and uh, there all the time. Um, so. Where I'm going with this is... Shall I enlighten you? Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. The reality of it is hmm. that less than 5% of uh, people who commit art crimes are arrested or convicted. Less than 5 It's considered a white-collar crime that is has no victim. Hmm. And so... And often, in fact, the trade of illegal art is between criminals who we can't find anyway. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the, uh, the, for instance, the FBI, I think, has six people who investigate uh, stolen art for the entire world. Interpol has maybe 12. Hmm. 
I think um, the British agencies have about six. So, you know, these are agencies that normally have thousands of agents to deal with white-collar crime or this or that, and they've, they've got six. Um, so uh, I just I, uh, was interviewed by a journalist in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, and he had just uh, coincidentally spent about four months investigating the theft of some very va- three three to maybe it was eight very valuable pieces of art. And the local police had given up after 48 hours. And, and that really intrigued him. He kind of went, wait, wait, what? And they said, you know, we've got to follow the rapes and the murders and the stabbings and the domestic violence. We can't spend time on stolen art. So he investigated it. He chased down these pieces of art. He found the guy who had stolen it, and he basically bullied the guy who had stolen it into returning it. And five of the eight pieces were returned. So everybody knew who did it because it was written up in this you know, long series of stories he wrote for the paper, and there have never been any arrests. Hmm. Really? So it's just, you know, it's just the way that crime goes. So all the would-be thieves out there, don't be selling drugs. Steal art. <laughs> well, they kill you for selling drugs, don't they? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Generally, they kill you. Generally. And if they don't kill you, they lock you up for your life. So good luck yeah. with that. I wouldn't want to spend a um, a day in an Istanbul prison. No freak. Well, out. that's what Knox faces. In the middle of this book, he's realizing if he's being set up and he's going to spend his life in an Istanbul prison, mm. uh, He's going to do whatever he can to avoid that because that's about a two-day sentence. Yeah, I Those would, are not prisons you want to be in. I would just sit in the red room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, now, hey, the red room. Yeah, is, what, yeah. Uh, the red room, the title refers to a highly secure room um, in, in the basement of an office building in Hong Kong. And what that comes out of hmm. is uh, when I was writing a, a novel years ago, um, I'm trying to think which one it was. It was Hard Fall, and I had been invited by the uh, FBI to spend a week with them in the uh, Hoover Building in in Washington D.C. and and they toured me around to other government agencies and facilities while I was there. And one such agency and facility that shall go unnamed, uh, they toured me through this amazing place. And at one point in the middle of this tour, we passed a bank vault door. You know, it looked like stainless steel with one of those giant cranks on it and a little digital keypad on the side of it. And uh, I said, wow, what's that? Is that like where you store your weapons and all of that? So if somebody were to break in here, they can't get them. (laughs) And I could see the guy's eyes kind of glaze over like, should I tell him or not? (laughs) And he had me sort of divert my eyes and he punched in some numbers, I'm sure, into that digital thing. And then he spun the big wheel. And I turned around, and he swung open what was a vault door. Now, you know, in a bank, vault doors are maybe two and a half feet thick. This thing was maybe eight, nine inches thick, but solid metal, you know, solid steel. And he swings the door open, and inside is a single light hanging from the ceiling, a very small table with a phone on it, a desk, basically, and a balding guy in his mid-40s. And the guy, the balding guy, looked at me and smiled, and the guy who was guiding me shut the door and turned the crank. <laughs> you don't want and to, I went, you oh, don't want to go oh, in there. Gosh. 
Dude, what is that guy doing? Did did he look like an average guy or did he look scary? He looked like an average guy. See, that's what scares Uh, the crap out of me. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Me too. I just – and until three days ago, for for about 15 years now, I have never known what that was about. Mm. Um, And a woman came up to me when I was in Chicago on book tour a few days ago. And she waited for the whole crowd to leave, and she came up and she said, uh, I think that was my husband in the room you looked in. No. And I went, what? So we sat down and talked, and whether it was her husband or not, she finally explained what these rooms are. She said, whether it was my husband or not, I know what was going on in there. She said, "Uh, top secret, people with top secret clearance Mm -hmm. at times are reporting to Congress or reporting behind closed doors to the Justice Department. Mm. And they need to get to and review top-secret documents. Mm. And there are a number of these vaults across Washington where such people can go, and they are locked inside with the documents that have not been redacted, which is drawing like Sharpie across the stuff you can't see. Sure. But they're locked in there, so no one can see them working. No one can get to the files that they're working on. They have access to the outside. If they need to place a call, they can call somebody and say, can you explain this or that or that? But they're in a totally secure area. And I think she's right. I think that's exactly what I saw. Uh, But I knew for sure what it was, was a, a room that could never be eavesdropped on. Yeah, and so that's what the red room is in the title of the book. Wow, <laughs> wow. So, but but there's one question. Okay, um, this is this is actually a pretty damn good read, and it it kind of reminds me of all the other books and movies and articles and things I've seen about the art trade because my dad was a gallery artist and I grew up during the 60s Ah. and so I I have a real uh, sound appreciation for art whether it be painting, sculpture, furniture, whatever. Um, Yeah, as do do I. My mom's a a fine artist so I'm in the same place she paints. There you go. There you go. Um, So um, my question is how – how much okay so you had an appreciation and so did you did you glean you know this appreciation this love for art growing up as a child um did that fold in immediately to the concept of the book or 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 did you just say you know what uh, this is an area um that is not talked about uh, people uh, really don't know about this uh, you know what was it, $4 billion or whatever business in, in trading art or stealing art. So how did, how did you, how did you set the premise and, and, uh, you know, why? I mean, <laughs> sure. Why? Well, I mean, a couple, couple things those were a lot of questions. So the first is that I did, I did acquire a love of art. My, my mom was a visual artist and we lived outside of New York city. Mm-hmm. And uh, she pulled me with her, sometimes kicking and screaming, mm-hmm. um, into New York City mm-hmm. several times a month mm-hmm. to see new openings and new shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that 
gave me an exposure to art that a lot of kids that age would never have had. Yeah. Um, so from a very young age, maybe seven or eight, we would drive into New York or take the train into New York to see a new show. Yeah. And uh, we'd meet my dad who worked in New York for lunch and we'd see another show and we'd go home. So this was something I was exposed to all along. And my, my next door neighbors were my cousins and my uncle uh, was, and, and he's passed away now, but still is regarded as one of the finest graphic designers in the world. So I also, that's where I got my work um, discipline from, because I would go over after school and uh, hang out with my, my uncle, Bradbury Thompson. And Bradbury he was Thompson just, you know, is your uncle. Bradbury Thompson, yeah. And wow. he was just devoted to his craft and would start at 7 in the morning and quit at 9 at night, which mm. is sort of what I do. Mm. And he worked at a table in his bedroom, mm. a drafting table, and he'd converted all these closets in their bedroom into filing cabinets. And mm. he was so generous with his time and would meticulously take me through what his assignment was and what he was doing. Mm. And he had we had art around our house. But this guy had serious art around his house uh, because he was such an important artist himself. I mean, he had contemporary art all over the house that was, you know, I'm sure now is valued at unbelievable amounts of money. Sure. Um, but it was he really knew his stuff. And his sons, uh, one grew up to be a, a hugely successful architect and the other was and is for 30 years. Uh, the chief of exhibitions at the National Gallery. Wow. And, and Dodge Thompson, who is that guy, uh, and I grew up as brothers. So I've been in touch with Dodge, you know, two, three times a year, uh, my whole adult life. And, and Dodge has always said to me, why aren't you writing, you know, art thrillers? Well, when you mention art thrillers to publishers, their eyes roll into the back of their heads and they fall asleep. Sure they, they, they want nothing <laughs> to do with them. Mm -hmm. uh, that changed when a little guy named Dan Brown wrote a little book called The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> Gee, I remember that And book. <laughs> then I was able to rub my, my editor's nose in it saying, see, art thrillers have a place. Mm -hmm. um, now, The Red Room is not an art thriller. Uh, it's really an espionage novel. But in the background, churning beneath the surface, uh, is this idea of selling an extraordinary antique uh, that came, uh, you know, an antiquity, a bust of an old statue uh, that's been been uh, missing for centuries that came out of Greece called the Harmodius. And uh, the fact that it might have arisen out of the sands of the Middle East is um, yeah, I mean, if that bust existed, it would be worth about $10 million. Mm. And John Knox and Grace Chu are selling it for $600,000. So uh, this guy really wants to get his hands on it. Yeah, he does. Good night. What's next for John and uh, Grace? Because uh, this is what the... I just got back from several weeks in uh, Kenya. Really? Uh, Nairobi and uh, north of Kenya, uh, a place called Nanyuki, mm. and uh, down near uh, Savo in southern, mm. um, southern Kenya. And I have become aware of and disturbed by the tragedy of the elephant and the rhinoceros. Mm. And I'm going to, uh, you know, I always put some kind of social issue or 
you know, crazy crime in the back of my novel. So mm. this time it's uh, the underlying theme is poaching of rhino and elephant. I, I hope at the end of reading this book next year, which I don't have a title for yet, uh, people will will maybe click on some uh, websites and, and send five bucks because we can stop this. But uh, nine years ago, there were five million elephant in Africa. Yeah. Uh, most estimates have that at 200,000 now. Yeah. Yeah. We're losing an elephant every four hours. Yeah. We lost um, 1,000 white rhino in South Africa alone, just one country yeah. alone last year, yeah. 2013. Yeah. So, I mean, if we don't stop this, our kids are only going to be say, seeing elephants and rhinos in uh, zoos. They're, they're going to be gone. Well, how the hell are you going to stop something like this? This has been going on for decades and decades and decades and decades. No, we can stop it. We can stop it. Yeah? I, I could give you the whole history, but that better be next year's interview all because right. it, it would take too long. But yeah. uh, really, we had it all fixed mm. about 12 years ago. And then there were two big mistakes made, and it opened up the whole thing again. And now it's just tragedy mm. that's going on there. Mm. Well, well, they, we'll get into that another time. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to because uh, a lot of people are saying uh, Africa is going to be the new frontier uh, for a lot of things. A lot of things. Africa is the new frontier for a lot of things. Uh, huh. yeah. Wow. And that's what going over to these places helps. Yeah. Because I had the book outlined, and yeah. I got over there, and you know, if I was making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, yeah, this this thing turned into a croissant. Mm. It, it has a thousand layers, mm. and I had no idea how many layers there are to it. You should talk. And now I do, and you know, I got to simplify it because I can't write a nine thousand page book. But it's fascinating. You should talk to Mike Bond. Um, Mike Bond is an author. He's a uh, uh, he's written a couple of books on. Uh, uh, these kinds of crimes. Um, he was a uh, he was a journalist, um, and he put himself into uh, dangerous situations over his career. Um, but he's written, a, yeah, nice guy too, nice guy. Um, and and you know, I I grew up. Well, we we all both you and I grew up. I mean, we knew we knew about. Well, okay, we go back to the old Tarzan movies and the old. Um, uh, African sure. explorer, you know, safari movies, and you see a couple pictures of this of the uh, natives, you know, with the ivory on their shoulders, you know, blah blah blah. Sure. But that's about all. That's about it. Um, um, yeah. That's all we remember. There's not. You're right. There's not a lot uh, news about this kind of crime, and it's horrible. Right. It's horrible. It's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. Picture a rhinoceros carcass lying there with its head cut off, and That'll that'll give you an image. <laughs> well, <laughs> all they want is that horn, and they kill the animal. Yeah, uh, taking the horn would kill them anyway, but they they do kill them. And um, the horn was worth two thousand dollars about ten years ago, and it's worth about seven hundred thousand dollars now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I watch Antique Roadshow a lot, and I see a lot of ivory uh, um, on on that show, and. Um, I guess back in the 70s or 80s, they put a uh, some kind of law in place where you couldn't export yes. certain art. Um, and, they, and they've toughened it up now. No one, anybody out there, do not buy ivory. It mm -hmm. is not right and illegal. It's, 
Yeah, dangerous, dangerous. Well, crazy, man. Um, I like it. I like uh, I like uh, where you're going with uh, with Chu and Knox. And uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I've had a great time writing these books. They're great characters. I can I can see them living for a while. Uh, what about you? Yes. <laughs> and I. Keep I'm going. loving them. Great. Yeah. Well, Ridley, uh, it's been a kick in the butt again. Um, I uh, I really enjoy talking to you. Uh, uh, we'll uh, we'll keep in contact. I hope when you're uh, when you get the title to your new book you're working on, and uh, maybe we can get together and talk about it. Um, Super. I appreciate you coming on, man. And Thanks so much. Thank you very much, sir. Folks, talk to you uh, Ridley Pearson, the Red Room. Um, Better get it, because uh, it's one of those cliffhangers again, as, uh, as Ridley writes. See you later, everybody.